The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And before opening it up for discussion, just to review, and there are many ways to do the loving kindness practice, not just one way. And uh, but it begins like I described, and I encourage you to keep making it part of your practice, maybe not every set, but at least once a week, so that it becomes, uh, you just develop that confidence that this heart is capable of being good, and I can find that goodness, and I can, it's kind of like, uh, I might have mentioned this last week, but having confidence that the particular mood or attitude is something that is always in play. So, you know, we're going to be grumpy sometimes, we're going to be irritable, we'll even be mean-spirited sometimes, right? And sometimes we'll be kind, and sometimes we'll be generous. But whatever the particular mood is, it's not a fixed thing. That's, that's what we call delusion. We think that whatever the mood I have now is, that that's who I am. You know, I'm the irritable one, or the grumpy one, or whatever. But if we just simply spend more of our day tracking reality as it is, we'll see that even in one day or even in one hour, there are many different me's. <laughs> there's the grumpy me, the happy me, the this me, the that me. It's not like there's a one mood or attitude that's me. And when we realize that, then, because there, there's this weird thing that we're sort of uh, invested in, in consistency, you know, it's like, no, I can't be happy now because, you know, on some unconscious level, I've decided I'm not happy. So, you know how we do that with kids. Some of you are probably parents, you know, and the kids in a funk, you know, and then we, if you, you know, you learn as the parent or as, you know, how to kind of break that spell. But, but what the interesting thing, the reason I'm bringing this up is, to notice how the child wants to cling, right? Because that's the, that's the power of identification or attachment itself. Because there's this sort of unconscious tendency to want self to be permanent. But self, whatever self is, it's like everything else. It's uh, unfolding. So. You know, in Buddhism, we can superficially misunderstand the teachings as, well, there isn't a self. But really what the teachings are is the self that is this, me, this activity of my body and mind, this body and mind. What it is, it's an unfolding process. It isn't a fixed Mark Nunberg, you know, because we have that wrong idea. It's like, oh yeah, back then when I was 18, that was me. You know, now I'm 64, this is me. And yesterday, Monday, that was me. And tomorrow, Wednesday, that will be me. Well, it's all related, but it's not, there isn't a me any of those places. It's just activity, ceaseless activity that is interrelated, clearly. But it isn't a fixed, permanent thing in any sense. 
And that's useful because that, that makes us more interested in the mood. And it's just interesting by just knowing the mood is grumpy or that the mind is angry or that the mind is sad or the mind is whatever the particular mood is, then it, it gets a little trippy. It's like knowing that the mind is angry. Am I angry still? Right? Because I'm knowing that there's anger. It's not really the same as... Because kind of the, the definition of classic anger is like not knowing you're angry. You know? I'm not angry. This person did this. I mean, I mean that's often what you say to, you say to someone who's... Oh, you, you seem angry. I'm not angry, but... <laughs> I'm not jealous. Because it's, there's that sense of identification and it's just like, well, no, yeah, I could see, I could understand why you think I'm angry, but, you know, this is how it is. This is the real me. This is the only way it could be. But with wisdom and awareness, the more momentum we get in practice and we have that, you know, we use this sort of phrase, like there's space space around the mood in a sense. I mean, that it's not literal, but <clears throat> there's this sense of space that recognizes the mood, whatever, wholesome mood, unwholesome mood. And, and then we really get that, what I said at the beginning of this uh, reflection, that mood is always in play. And then it's sort of like, then, then we become a bit of a, like a, a craftsperson where we're like, how can we continually craft through how we pay attention and to, to what we pay attention a really wholesome mood? So like even if I'm, uh, I'm had a terrible day and a lot of bad stuff has happened, I can craft a wholesome mood by caring about how difficult my life is right now. Because the caring about the difficulty is a beautiful mind state. And that's the thing, is to never believe there needs to be a negative, toxic mind state. It's understandable that unhelpful, unwholesome, toxic, whatever, states of mind will get triggered, right? It's totally understandable. But in terms of practice, we want to be interested, well, how does this become something wholesome again? And that's why we, I'd encourage you to do the loving-kindness practice, because it's, it's the basic way we work with mood. And in Buddhism we talk about like the only four emotions we need, all our qualities of love. So there's basic friendliness, basic goodness, what we call metta, you know, if you want to use the Pali word. And then when that basic goodness runs into a moment where there's a lot of suffering, our own or somebody else's, then compassion arises. And when we bump into people who are happy or people ourselves or others who are experiencing some success, then there's mudita, appreciative joy, gladness, sympathetic joy, right? It's like, your happiness is making me happy. May it continue. The, the capacity to appreciate, which is, of course, the opposite of the habit of envy and jealousy. It isn't fair. Why are you happy? What about me? Right? 
And then there's equanimity, which is, this is sort of interesting that that's considered one of the divine abodes, as they're called, um, qualities of love. That radiant balance. And you can see, like, because love is that capacity to be intimate no matter what's going on. So when things are really confusing or ambiguous, then we need equanimity. It's that radiant balance. Like, I don't know what the hell's going on, but I know how to be intimate. I know how to know that it's confusing. And it feels like this. And I'm okay. You know, connecting, being present, being intimate. And responding, knowing that it's confusing and ambiguous and I don't know what to do. And I still care. Because I know how to be balanced even when I don't know what to do or say. Right? Just like we need appreciation to be intimate when people are really happy and experiencing success or whatever, right? Without that appreciation, we can't really meet the moment. And without compassion, we can't really show up when there's suffering. Like, I'm not afraid of your suffering because I can be close doesn't mean, compassion doesn't mean I'm going to fix your suffering. Of course, because there's compassion and there is something we can do, we're going to do it. But compassion is that ability to be close to suffering, whether or not there's something we can do to alleviate it. I'm not afraid. I, and it could be our own suffering or somebody else's. And you know that, you know, this is not uncommon for us where somebody is in a difficult, a good friend, let's say, is in a difficult situation, and we catch ourselves being neurotic about wanting to fix it because your suffering is bothering me. I mean, we don't say that, but it's like, that's the unconscious, like, I don't like that you're hurting. I need you to get better because your suffering is an irritant for me. And what we're really modeling for them is you should also hate your suffering. But when things are painful, emotionally, physically painful, hating it is just another layer of suffering on top of what's already painful. And if there's something we can do, we should do it to alleviate the pain. But if there's nothing to do, and sometimes that's how it is, there's a painful thing going on, and there, in that moment, nothing to do. But we can be intimate with it. We can be compassionate with it, which is the wise, loving thing to do. It's helpful. And we can do it for each other, basically modeling what they themselves have to do. They have to have an intimate and fearless relationship with the pain, the emotional, physical pain in their life. So we show up, you know, at the hospital or at home or wherever we're going to be around them, and we do our best to practice not being afraid of their suffering. It takes some time to trust real compassion. There's all this, you know, contrived compassion, like I said, where we're trying to fix, tell somebody what they need to do. But it'd be nice to hear your own learnings, people online and people here in the room questions that have emerged, anything related to the practice now week six, 
I want to save a little time before we end just to talk about a little bit more about practicing in daily life, but it would be nice to hear from some of you about how the practice, you've noticed the practice showing up in daily life. And if you haven't, start paying attention because it is, I'm, I guarantee if you've been putting in some time, formally sitting, coming here on Tuesday night, you'll just start noticing it in little moments. So look for it. Yeah, but what comes to mind, people online, you can just unmute yourselves or raise your digital hand and the people here just signal me and yeah, do you mind just coming up front? So I can hand you the mic here. Uh, one question that has come up or uh, something that I've noticed is um, like there's a, I find uh, like benefit in like, uh, in like being lost in thought sometimes contemplating um, you know, life issues or problems, uh, work, whatever, um, and then finding a balance when uh, like mindfulness comes back to mind and um, wondering like is there in fact a balance or is it just a changing of my perspective on like what that uh, what that lost in thought quote unquote uh, versus mindfulness like is, is there a way to like, meld those two things together yeah that's a great question thanks and you know another way of kind of uh, talking about that is are there actually whoops sorry about that everyone are there actually moments where mindfulness is inappropriate and you know, we do like, we fantasize and <clears throat> plan and judge and you know, the, the mental processes, cognitive processes, always happening. And a little bit like you intimated, there's a sense that it's not really appropriate for me to be aware when my mind is thinking about this or doing that. You know, it's like uh, lovemaking. Is it okay to be aware when I'm lovemaking, you know, making love to my partner? Or is it okay to be aware when I'm picking out on popcorn? Or is it okay to be aware when I'm... And you know how we answer that is we practice being aware in those times. And we really challenge the, any notion, because initially it might seem awkward to be present at different places, almost like, like you're watching somebody else, you know, somebody who's home alone and you're peeking in the window. It's like, that's a little perverse, you know. And so it can feel that way initially, like, um, and, it, and we can wrongly project that the awareness is making me tight. But that's not actually what's happening. I mean, sometimes it, the awareness is actually infused with judgment. You know, there is a sort of, but that's not the awareness. Awareness, remember that image I used earlier in the course, is like a mirror. We're just learning in a sense to hold up a mirror that's always endlessly, effortlessly reflecting 
what's going on in the body and mind. But we're used to operating unconsciously, or, I mean, we're conscious, so it's not really correct to say unconsciously, but what we mean by that is, yeah, the mind's conscious, but we're not aware of what the mind is conscious of. There's not mindfulness. And what we're learning, and it's clunky, and there's pushback, but we're learning to trust presence always. But we start where it's relatively easy. And then like, and then we start bringing it even into social interactions where we're talking. But start where it's relatively easy. You're going to lose it all the time. I mean, truthfully, and I might have mentioned this earlier, you know, even now, having done the Course, or somebody like myself who's practiced sincerely for 40 years, I mean, sitting every day, almost every day, I mean, I'm sure there's a few that I haven't, but basically, sitting every day for 40 years, doing lots of retreats, I've, I've been on silent meditation retreats cumulatively for about three years of my adult life, so, you know, a lot of time cultivating awareness. But still, my day, is filled with moments of being unconscious, being unaware, right? Just lost in thought, dramas, fantasies, whatever. But there's so many more moments of mindfulness coming back. And the really powerful thing that's happened over the decades is when mindfulness returns, it doesn't neurotically try to clean up my act, right? It's like the mirror's back online without any judgment, without any scolding, without trying to make it look pretty. No, no. Being Mark, being this activity of body and mind that we refer to as me or Mark, it's like this. It's like this. And really trusting that flavor of simplicity. It's just this being known. And the thing is, what we call me, Mark, it just works so much better when we invest in that ongoing awareness than when we try to be a good mark. Like if we want to be a good mark, a good person, then the way to do that is to be aware, not to try to do your life right. I mean, just an example, let's say you have a difficult interaction at work regularly, some meeting that happens every couple of days, and there's some people that really know how to get under your skin and push your buttons. And then you, you just to kind of give it two choices. One choice is I'm going to really figure out how to master that situation so that I don't suffer. And the other is I don't really, I mean, honestly, I don't know how to be skillful, but I do know how to be present. So instead of thinking, this is what I should do when I'm in that situation. I'm just going to cultivate the stability of present moment awareness as best I can. I'll lose it, I'll regain it. And that's where like bodily awareness that we can cultivate in our sitting practice, whole body awareness or awareness of the breath, can be very useful because we'll be on the verge of getting lost in our reactivity, but then we'll remember, well, yeah, breathing in is like this or feeling the body sitting is like this. And because the mind has the habit of being, knowing how to be present with our meditation anchor, whole body awareness, breath, hearing, whatever you work with, then we can touch into that for just a moment or two. 
So it's not like, hey, I need five minutes. <laughs> you know, it's just like a little moment where we touch into that. And then it's like the mind remembers how to be present and balanced and non-reactive for a moment until the triggers keep triggering. And then we might need to be... And then eventually we can kind of go in... You know, the mind is very quick. So we can go back to more neutral experience where we know how to be present without reactivity and then right back to the conversation and the emotions and the person attacking me. And then, and that it feels like we're doing both at the same time, but it, we're kind of moving back and forth. But it really supports us. So that, you know, somebody who's been practicing for a long time, it's like, that space of equanimity, that space of non-reactivity, it's like always there now. I can forget it, but that doesn't mean it goes away. It's just like, I'm really focused on why I'm angry at you, so I forget to notice that. But whenever I look, I sense that peace, that equanimity, that possibility of non-reactivity, it's just there. And so that, and that's the space of wisdom and awareness. And that's our refuge. And that's what we're building the momentum of. We're learning to one first, we have to learn to recognize it. There is this natural capacity, potentiality to be awake and clearly aware. And over time, clearly aware of what's, what attitudes or ways of relating are skillful, and what attitudes, ways of relating are not helpful. Right? And that isn't you or me, that's just habit, but good habit. So it isn't Mark back there observing with wisdom, it's just natural capacity of the mind. Just like when I'm acting out in an unskillful way, that's not me either, that's just habit. You know, conditioned habit forces patterns in the mind that got conditioned in. But now we're conditioning in this habit of wisdom and awareness. And it's really protecting. Yeah, thanks for getting us started. Other comments from people online or <clears throat> people here in the room? <clears throat> Yeah, please. Do you want to come up front or do you want to just say it there? If I could just say it here. Yeah, and I'll repeat it for the people online. them 
to know me and to love me more. And so then they came, the me was just kind of curled up next to the loving heart and kind of crying, you know, just really saying how much I hurt, how much I hurt because I don't think these people care enough for me or love me. And then my loving heart was able to hug myself so that unconditional light and love is there and it, it's, it's here and it's the God within and was able to hug me in my pain for both of those instances and now I don't feel as hurt. I feel comforted. Yeah. Could people online hear her? Maybe give me a thumbs up if you could hear her. Yeah? Oh, good. Yeah, a beautiful testimony, testimony to the power of this attitude of loving kindness. It is healing. And the, the thing about love, it, 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 it kind of circulates in a way that can really begin to resolve these sticky places that, you know, can have years. The roots of these sticky situations in our lives can be so complex and convoluted. But this capacity of the love and the, and the nice thing I liked about how you shared is that the giving is very much related to the receiving, you know, and the sensing of that capacity to care about our lives, to care about others. It's almost like, uh, like if you've done any healing, uh, people who work with chi, the, the subtle energies or healing energies, it's like being a conduit for healing energy. And uh, it's, a, it's similar with the, the quality of love. And this is really useful just in daily life. You know, I mentioned that. I wanted to share a little bit about how to practice in da daily life. That this merger, this coming together of awareness and kindness or love is a really great way to practice all day long. This, you know, like conjoining the attitude of loving, but not in a contrived, like, you don't know what it's going to look like, but you know the feeling of it, the generosity of it. And you know it's related to, it requires presence. Right? You can't love and be disconnected, right? It just doesn't make sense. To, to be loving, to be kind, to be compassionate, depends on sensitivity or connection or being right there in the moment with whatever is, uh, we, we have these loving feelings for. Now the, the hard thing about practicing in daily life is remembering to do it. That's what's hard. Because we get swept away by you know, habits that we have in certain areas. So one of the things to keep in mind now as the Course ends is how are you going to support yourself in keeping the practice in mind? And I mentioned at the beginning, like, if you can swing it, have a little corner of one room 
that is about this practice. And, you know, have your chair, your cushion there, have some of the books that have been supportive for you in the practice there, or other things, your meditation shawl or your candle or whatever you like, you know, it doesn't matter. But, but like if it's really meant to be, you want it to be an important part of your life, then it deserves a place. Because then all day long when you're in your space, you're going to see that place. And it's going to remind you, oh yeah, I care about this. And the other thing is, it's not easy to do that. If you're really going to make this part of your life, you're going to want a friend who is as into it as you are. So you need to, you know, use a place like Kamagarn to meet people who are into the practice if you don't already have friends. And then you're going to want community, probably. And there are a number of good Buddhist meditation centers in the cities. So part of it is convenience, like where is some place you're actually going to show up from time to time? And get some more teachings, get a support. You probably notice that when we're having a class like this, even those of you at home, it's a little easier to sit for 30 minutes when you're with a group. You know, this is why even people on Zoom, even though it can be feel weird to have the video on all the time, but there's a kind of commitment to showing up. And part of it is showing up on Zoom, but part of it is sometimes having your video on, like, yeah, I'm really here. You know, I'm not doing the dishes, I'm not doing four things at once. I'm actually with all of us together. And just like the people in the room, you know, you got yourselves here. So that, it's the same with your marriage or your partnerships. Uh, what really deepens those partnerships is acting out a commitment. Like, how do I know you're committed? Well, you're listening. You're not on your phone listening. You know, you're actually listening to what I have to say. And so when you do your practice, let that, that formal part, it's also a ritual for you that this is important to me. How do I know it's important to me? Because I've shut my phone off. And I've told the people I live with, don't bother me for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And I've even put my dog, who I love, in the other room, because <laughs> it will want to be petted. You know, I. So this is like a real expression, and I put aside a weekend, and I'm going on a Buddhist retreat, or I get myself across town to Kamagawa Meditation Center. These things start to add up, this sort of acting out a commitment. Just like not doing those things will have consequences too. You could feel really like this is an important thing, but if you don't act on that, with intentional actions, it will fade away because life has a way of putting things on our to-do list. And even things we deeply care about, like the person we're married to, or the, we just start neglecting. So I mentioned at the beginning, like part of that is falling in love, like really sensing there's something here that I care about, like feeling the pleasure, the subtle spiritual pleasure of being real with your life. It's subtle. It's not the same as blaring music, you know, that's got a great beat or eating great spicy food, but it's still real. But you have to tune, like 
we're used to attuning to what's gross, obvious, and to have a spiritual life, we have to attune to what's subtle. But in spiritual sense, subtle is more significant than what's gross. But it's often missed because we haven't cultivated the sensitivity to notice what's subtle. And that's the other reason for the daily sitting or the almost daily sitting practice, is it makes us more sensitive. And when we're sensitive, we'll sense what's subtle. And you know the other thing about what happens when you get sensitive? You'll find it impossible to be an ordinary human being. Because it's really unbearable to like, you know, just to have a mind that's dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion when you're sensitive. It's very easy to let your mind be dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion when you're not sensitive. That's our world, right? Most of our minds, most of the time, are expressing some combination of greed, hatred, and delusion. And we don't seem to have a big problem with it because that's all we know. But when we become sensitive, then when we are acting out some expression of aversion, some expression of greediness, some expression of delusion, which just means being disconnected, it's really painful. We feel how unpleasant it is to be disconnected, to be aversive, to be greedy, wanting things to be different, wanting something out there, you know, that's going to happen in the people wanting it. It's painful. It doesn't matter whether it's a skillful thing out there, but the wanting of it is stressful, right? I've ordered a pair of sandals, or slippers to wear at home, you know, and they got delayed. And I just noticed, like, even something simple like that, it's like, like, and I'll be happy when it comes, not because it matters so much having the pair of slippers, but at least I'm not wanting them anymore. That was stressful. They're here. But I didn't need to be stressed about them not being here. I ordered them, they'll come, probably. And the last thing I'll say about you know, practicing in daily life, so remembering what's important, having symbols that help you, even something silly like awareness, you write on a piece of paper, you put it in your pocket, at least you'll remember when you put your hand in your pocket, what's that piece of, oh yeah, Awareness, present moment or you know, so anything you can do, taking a few minutes, if you have like an office, shut the door, just do a few minutes of practice, just to, literally a couple minutes. You don't have to look weird. Little walking places, you know, where you walk to the bathroom, just make that little mindfulness exercise, that physicality of going from your desk to the bathroom. Just really be in the experience. You won't look weird, you know. You just outwardly look like a human being walking to the bathroom, but inwardly you'll be like, oh, it's like this now. You'll be recognizing that mirror-like loving presence. Oh yeah, it's just this experience being known. We'll rediscover our life for a moment until we get swept away. But the last thing is just that sense of humor. Like, we need to respect the force of habit, aversion, greed, and delusion. We see it in ourselves, we see it in others, and what really helps is a sense of humor. Because otherwise, 
we get angry at it, which is just more of the delusion and hatred and, and the greed. You know, we want to be enlightened. Well, that kind of greed for being a wise human being doesn't make us wise, it makes us tight. Or being averse to other people who aren't being aware. That's common. People who have really started to practice, digging into the practice, we get really aversive to people who are being unmindful. <laughs> Which is just more aversion. The world is in need, right? So having a sense of humor about all that really helps us in the long run. Not taking ourselves too seriously. Not taking the practice too seriously. Because it doesn't actually help it. It just, you know, creates that sort of Buddhist stink where we think we're better than other people because I'm trying to be aware. So I hope to see you at the center if it makes sense. You can always reach out if you have questions. There are weekly practice groups. Shelley Graff, the other guiding teacher here, they have one on Wednesday nights uh, online right now, but probably will be both online and in person soon. And then I do Sunday morning and Sunday night. These are drop-in. You can come any of the Sunday or Wednesday practice groups. There's always a guided meditation for 30 minutes and then a talk and discussion. It's kind of the main event here. So many other things. You're always welcome to retake the intro class. Don't be shy about that if that feels helpful. They're online. You can just re-listen to them, of course. Yeah. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be with you all. Wishing you all well with your practice. Hope to see you down the road. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.